Hey, if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37. We had actually gone through Genesis, I think it was before COVID. We got to around 30, chapter 35, 36. And then we had like Christmas, and then we had a prayer series, and then COVID hit, and then it was like, you know, or something like that. My memory's bad. I'm getting old. I still feel 25 at heart, though. How do you guys feel that way? 25 inside, your body disagrees. Yeah, me too. We're, we're the same. So we had gone through Genesis uh, a whole lot, and uh, which is uh, a very foundational book. In fact, it's, fun, it's funny, uh, it's interesting. Genesis, how Genesis begins, creation and the foundational principles in Genesis you go to Revelation, that's how it ends. It's like the reversal, you know. You get the tree of life in Genesis, you get the tree of life in Revelation. And everything in between is God redeeming man and fixing the problem of sin, you know. And, um, and Genesis starts with the creation of humans, right? Of people, of mankind, of Adam, right? Of mankind. But Genesis will end with God's emphasis on one family, from one man to one family, and most of the book of Genesis is actually devoted to one guy in his family. That's Jacob. Half of Genesis is devoted to Jacob and his kids. And his kids will become Israel. His name is changed to Israel, but his kids will become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so you see the focus of, of, of Genesis is really on God's work on that man. Of course, it started with God's promise to Abraham. right? And God says, I'm going to make you a blessing I'm going to give you children, a lot of children. You can't count them if you, if you could. And I'm going to give you a place to a land, right? It's threefold blessing. And God has promised those blessings from, from Abraham to Isaac and then to, to Jacob. But the interesting thing is, whereas the promise was to Isaac, not Ishmael, it was to Jacob and not Esau, the younger of those. But then when he gets to Jacob, now God will spread that blessing to all his kids, right? And the idea is he's going to use the people of God, the nation of Israel, to be a light to the Gentiles, to spread the gospel, right? to spread the word. That's the intent. And eventually to bring in the Messiah, right? So you think, that's great. So now we get to Genesis 37. Go to 37, okay? And Genesis 37 begins what we call the story of Joseph. It's still the story of Jacob. But the emphasis here is, is on God's actions through Joseph, and God's actions eventually into the rest of Jacob's kids. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned. Jacob, of course, had been wandering. If you remember Jacob's story, when he was pregnant, when he was his mother's womb, he was fighting with his brother. <laughs> and all his life, Jacob had been fighting or conniving, or his name actually means heel catcher. It's a description of what he's doing with his brother Esau. He's a, he's a tripper. He's a deceiver. He's, he's, he'll do what he can to get ahead. That's been his life. And he took advantage of his, his brother when he was famished. He said, Esau, hey, sell me the, the, you know, the birthright here, and uh, I'll give you some stew. Sure, Esau didn't care about those kind of things. And then when his dad was getting old, Although his dad lived many years, but his dad felt like he was getting old, like the rest of us, you know, <laughs> and he was blind. He took advantage of his dad. He took the blessing. And then from there, he goes and he flees from his, his, uh, his brother Esau to go to Uncle Laban's house, 
Uncle Laban tricks him. He tricks the trickster. He falls in love with Rachel, who works seven years, finds out he actually is marrying to Leah, who's the unloved one. He works another seven years and marries Rachel, and then he works a little bit longer to get sheep and things like that. And now you have Jacob, who now has, he's got two wives and their concubines, and he has kids through all of them, and the house is a mess. And one wife is, I love my wife, but I can't imagine trying to please more than one wife. Not to mention sisters that are in competition with one another. Here's Leah, who's unloved, but very fertile. And here's Rachel, who's loved, but she can't have kids. And so there's this, comp- there's this tension in the family, right? Eventually they have, they have the kids. And, and Joseph is finally the child that Rachel gives to, to Jacob. And Joseph is a very special kid. And then Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin, Joseph's younger brother. Now Jacob has, he has struggled his whole life. He has struggled trying to get his family together. He has, uh, he has struggled and strived against people. And then when he's coming back, he struggles and strives against God. He wrestles with God. And at the scene at night where he's wrestling with this man that comes out of nowhere, this angel, who's probably, you know, practiced jujitsu or something like that, he did a little thing, and he dislocated Jacob's hip. And Jacob, from then on, walks with a limp. He's lost his wife. He's, he's met up with his brother Esau. That's chapter, uh, the previous chapter. And now he's finally into the land. His brother Esau is very successful, has all kinds of men, has a family and everything else. And, but he's coming, and Jacob's coming with his four wives and his 12 kids. Well, actually, one wife has died, but his whole family... He's finally coming into the land of promise. He ends up going to a place called Hebron. In verse 2, it says, Now these are the generations of Jacob. Generations of the word Toledoth in Hebrew. And that's how Genesis is actually structured, about 10 Toledoth. And this is going to talk about his history, his family. When you normally read this is called the generations of so-and-so, you're expecting to see his, his descendants. Go back. Uh, go back to the previous chapter. I told, I told Beth I wasn't going to do that, but look at, look at the previous chapter. I'm just going to show you this, okay? 36. See how it says in 36.1, these are the generations of Esau. And then what it's going to describe, it's going to describe all of Esau's kids and their kids and the whole family. That's the idea, right? So it's going to tell you all these. But now go back to 37. It's not going to do that yet. It's only going to describe one person named Joseph. He'll get to the rest of the kids, but he's going to focus on Joseph because what God wants to do. These are the generation of of Jacob, verse 2 of chapter 37. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while still a youth. So he's one of the youngest one. The Hebrew indicates that he wasn't just pastoring the flock. It could also allow he was pastoring his brothers. Now, this may be an indication of what's to come. But he's the youngest one, or the second youngest one, right? He's pastoring with his brothers while still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Bilhah. Those are the two concubines. The sons would be Gad and Asher and Dan and Naphtali. So he's with all his brothers, and he's helping them out. The idea, he's a helper. He's young. And Joseph brought back an evil report about them to their father. 
Don't you just hate the, the younger kid that has to tell on you, right? Now, we don't know what, we don't, I don't want to read into the text because it doesn't tell me his intentions. The problem, though, is some of his brothers aren't good. When they got back to the land, two chapters, three chapters ago, they went to a place called Shechem, and their sister Dinah was raped by, the, by, by one of the Shechemite boys. And he said, I love your, your sister Dinah. I want to marry her. And, and the, the, the brother said, hey, you know, and it sounds like they're a mafioso boss. You know, if you want to marry into a family, you've got to obey the, by the family rules. You've got to be circumcised. And they said, sure. In fact, all you guys have, in the town have to be circumcised. They got circumcised, and three days later, all, Simeon and Levi, the t- two of the older brothers, killed all the men in Shechem. So this evil report he brings back may be an honest report to their dad, because these guys aren't that good. Remember, this is going to be the future of Israel. Now, verse 3. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. And to show this love, of course, he makes him a varied colored tunic. First of all, you have problems right off the bat. When you have favoritism, this is my favorite son. I didn't really love your mom or any of you guys. I love him the best. In fact, when he makes him this, it's called a multicolor, very kind of tunic. It can be translated different ways. One could be a multicolor. One is a long-sleeved robe that basically, the whole intent of the robe is to say to show status, um, to show I'm choosing J- Joseph to be my future heir. When it says the son of his old age, it's referring to that. I'll keep reading. I'm going to go through the text and explain, and then come back, and we'll look at uh, what's going on here, okay? His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, so they hated him and could not speak a word of peace to them. They couldn't even find anything good to say to their brother. In fact, the word brothers is repeated like 21 times. But they're so unbrotherly-like, you're going to see. They're anything but true brothers. Then Joseph had a dream. And he told it to his brothers, so they hated him even more. And he said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. Indeed, behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf rose up and stood upright. And behold, you hear this word behold like seven or eight times in this chapter. And the idea is, look, 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 just pay attention to what I'm saying here. It's very visual, right? Behold, my sheaves, were, my sheaves rose up and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaves. Then his brothers said to him, Are you really going to reign over us? Are you really going to rule over us? They get the sense of the dream. No one has to interpret to them. They get it. Wait, you're going to be in charge. You little 17-year-old little trip little telltale, we can't stand, your daddy's favorite, you're going to rule over us, I over my dead body. So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. You see this resentment, you already get this tension within the family, right? You already get this conflict, and Joseph is oblivious to their hatred, and so is Jacob. See, some people can just carry on a 
underlying resentment towards somebody and you would never know it until one day it just explodes and you're like, boy, where did that come from, right? Then he still had another dream and recounted it to his brothers and said, behold, I had another dream and behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me and recounted it to his father and to his brothers and his father rebuked him and said, what's this dream that you've had? So I and your mother and your brothers come down, uh, really come to bow ourselves before you to the ground. We think his mother was dead, so perhaps Leah was his surrogate, you know, was his you know, adopted mom type. The idea is, are we as a family going to come and bow down to you? And Jacob's like, what's up with this? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Jacob has learned enough. He's learned enough in his life to understand, okay, God may be at work here. I'm going to keep this because I'm not going to resist. See, the thing about the brothers, they want to resist the will of God. They don't, want, they, don't want to, they don't want to bow down to their brother. They have this resentment, jealous heart, hatred heart that doesn't even want to acknowledge that perhaps God may be doing something in Joseph's life. It's interesting later on, everything in this story of Jacob, of Joseph from 37 to 50, there are things that happen in doubles, right? Two dreams here, there, there. It's too, too a lot of stuff. And he'll explain later on when he, has, when he interprets the dream of Pharaoh, he'll, he'll say, because it's given, his Pharaoh had two dreams as well, because God has given you two, that means it's established. He's going to make it happen. Right? The brothers recognize, okay, we're, we're not going to hear this. Some people aren't even in a place where they want to hear the truth, right? They're just not ready to want to bow down to God even. They like talk to the hand God. Let's keep reading. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Then his brothers, so so far, so far we've set up. There's a lot of, there's a lot of problems in this family, isn't there? Right? It's, something's boiling, and and the brothers, well, you'll see what happened. Look at here. Then his brothers went out to pasture the fo- uh, their flocks in Shechem. That's sixty miles north of where they're at. It could be because. Certain times of the year, are, you know, there's certain places that are better, but they're 60 miles north. Why are they up in Shechem? Didn't they have bad stuff going on up there? What's going on? Are they running aside? We don't know. They don't, the text doesn't tell us, but he's far away, right? And Israel, that's Jacob, said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. I, I'm going to comment on this right now. The language here parallels the language of Genesis 22, where God says, take now your son, right? Go. It's the same language of, of, of Abraham being sent to Moriah to then offer his son. And in one sense, Jacob unknowingly is then going to be offering his son Jacob to the hands of God. He doesn't realize that. We'll see that in a second. I will send you to them. And he said to them, I will go. Or as often as it could be translated, here I am. Then he said to him, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring back word to me. Now they're, they're 60 miles. So if they were closer by, he could have visited them real fast. But they're so far away. He's like, let's go check on them. Make sure they're okay. Make sure they're not up to no good, right? And a man found him. Verse 15. A man found him and behold, he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? And he said, 
I'm seeking my brothers. So the Hebrew is actually emphasized, my brothers I'm looking. Like he still ha- he, Joseph has no animosity towards his brothers. My brothers I am seeking. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. Then the man said, they have journeyed from here, for I heard they, uh, let us go to Dothan. Dothan is like another 14 miles north of that. Now he's what, 80, 70, 80 miles away. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Verse 18. And when they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted him, uh, they plotted against him to put him to death. They see him, they see, he's wearing that coat. As soon as they see that the trigger goes, we can't, let's, hey, we're far from home. Nobody, nobody has to know. Let's do away with this guy. Let's get this thorn out of our, our side. Let's get this, this little, well, look what he says, verse 19. Then they said to another, here comes this dreamer. They say sarcastically. Now, here's this little master of dreams. He's coming by. Who does he think he is? So now, come and let us kill him. The word there there for kill is a a violent term for kill, to slay violently. And let's cast him into one of the pits. And the word there for cast means to throw a body like a corpse into a grave. Let's throw him into his grave. And we will say, a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dream. See, that's what the top of the... They can't stand the fact that God's going to use... They don't realize what it's going to look like. That God's going to use Joseph to rule over them. See, some people resist Christ because they don't want anyone ruling over them, right? They want to be Lord of their lives. They push back against God constantly, Right? Scripture says, every knee will bow. Willingly or unwillingly, you're going to bow, right? And it's better to bow now here on earth <laughs> than have to bow when you're dead and eternally somewhere, right? Bow now. And it starts in the heart. You see, the bro- so far, the brothers, their heart. Oh, this, and Jesus says, you know, if you have murder in your heart, right? Hatred in your heart, that's murder. That's what's, this is, I'll play in that. We'll get to the, uh, get to the comment in a second. Verse Verse 21, but Reuben, Reuben's the firstborn, he heard this and delivered him out of their hands and said, let's not strike down his life. Don't take his life. Now, Reuben's the firstborn. Now, Reuben, though, he kind of went down some notches because a couple of chapters before he slept with one of the concubines, with one of his dad's wives. So he's kind of like, he kind of needs to re... What's the word I'm looking for? redeem himself, right? So he feels this responsibility to maybe do his dad good. Maybe because he's the oldest, he's the wisest, right? Verse 22. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood, cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not put forth your hands against him. He said this, that he might deliver him out of their hands and return him to his father. Now it happened when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic. They didn't have to put, they didn't push him into the pit first. They took the tunic, which represented the status he had, off of him. It represented God's favor, Jacob's favor, 
as his favorite boy out of him. They stripped that. They were so resentful about that. They're resentful of his dreams. They stripped his tunic, the varied color tunic that was on him, and they took him and cast him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. What do you do when your brother's in a pit? Well, you just sit down and eat a meal. This might be even be some food that Joseph brought with them. We don't know. Some provision. You talk about the callousness of their heart, right? We find out later on that Joseph is screaming and pleading for his life. Right now, the text is silent on Joseph's reaction, right? He's like the sheep that's silent before it's, you know, before it's quiet, like the way Christ was. But we find later on, when the brothers converse about this many years later, that Joseph is pleading for his life. He's begging them, please don't do this. They sat down to eat a meal, and they lifted up their eyes and saw, and behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites. Ishmael was like their cousins, because Abraham's firstborn was Ishmael by Hagar. They were coming from Gilead, which is on like Jordan today. It's on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And they were coming with their camels, bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh, and coming down to bring them to Egypt. In fact, where they're at now at Dothan, it's, there's a trade rod that goes down to Egypt. And they're on their way. And Judah said to his brothers, What gain is this if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Judah is the fourthborn, and he's going to have a significant part to play in Israel's history. We'll comment that in a second. Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother. Hey, let's just sell him and not kill him because the actual, he is our brother, right? Our own flesh. His brothers listened. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled them up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. That's about the price of a, of a slave at that time. And they brought Joseph into Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit. Reuben obviously was not there. Returns to the pit. And behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments then he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the varied colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, The indication of the text, it seems to hint that they sent it ahead. And they don't say anything. They just kind of show them. They said, we found this. We found this. Please recognize it. Is it your, whether it's your son's tunic or not. Not our brother's tunic, but if it's, is this your son's tunic? Kind of like disting themselves. Now, they're very sly. The brothers, they've learned something from dad, haven't they? Right? They don't go out and say anything. They just kind of show them the evidence. The we found this. And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. They don't say anything. They, he sees blood on the tunic and concludes that he must be dead. They don't even need to lie. They just kind of just let... Let it happen, right? So Jacob 
tore his clothes and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his sons many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. And this is going to be a season of weeping. I don't call it a season because it's going to last 20 some odd years. Jacob's already broken once by the angel of God. He's limping. But now he's got a limp going on inside, right? Verse 36. Meanwhile, at the same time that Jacob is starting to mourn for his dead son, Joseph, the Mennonites, sold Joseph to, in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. This is my favorite story. I hate to say it's story. My favorite account. To me, story implies something that's not true. But this is my favorite. We'll call it story, but you know what I'm saying, right? In the scripture. What's going on here? This is God's work, the beginnings of God's work of transformation. What a mess, right? You've got dysfunctional family. If, if you think the scripture is not honest about life, it's honest right here. Some of us grew up in broken homes. We've got conflict. We got strife. Maybe we would I used to fight with my brother growing up all the time. You know, we're close. You know, we love each other. There's tension, right? We can relate to that. Some of us have been rejected, maybe by a mom or a dad or somebody close by, and this there's this this broken, dysfunctional mess. God doesn't need to start with the best material. He can start with the worst material and make it transform. Why? Because now at the beginning of the story, we see them in raw. We say, this is how they are. And by the way, let's not sugarcoat it. They're bad, right? And this speaks of how God works transformation in everyone's life through Jesus Christ. Why? Because so some people think that you have to improve yourself before you become acceptable to Christ. Jesus says, I'll take you warts and slime and all, right? You say, What's, what, how, what can God do with such a family? God can work such a transformation that at the beginning of the story, all the brothers are thinking about is themselves. They're not thinking about their dad. How could you go to your dad with your brother's tunic full of blood and know for years you're lying to your dad you're not telling you could see him grieving every day he probably went away constantly to go be by himself in fact he was never consoled he goes i'm gonna go down to the grave weeping for my son your dad's broken and you're so hard-hearted you're not even willing to tell him the truth god's going to use people like that and by the end of the story the brothers have been changed you're gonna, we're going to see that as we go through. If you think some people are hopeless and helpless, well, they're helpless, all of us. If you, some people, you, you say, that person, my family member, my son, my daughter, my uncle, my dad, that's, it's, even God can't help them. This is the evidence to the contrary. The evidence is there. Here, God says, let me tell you my starting material. It's, it's this. It's this family. And by the way, I need to do something in this family to make them to the people of God that they're going to become because, because I made promises. And when God's in the picture, don't go, count God out. Now, here's another thing. 
And some of us, you know, we relate to, I relate to, you know, we relate to Joseph, you relate to different people in the story. Jacob, who's, who's, who's had a lifelong struggle, and finally he comes to the land, and maybe he's thinking, oh, my problems are done with, right? How many guys have you, you come to a place in your life, you're like, Lord, if only my problems are done with. God still has more work to do in Joseph, or Jacob, rather, and in Joseph as well. But here's a, a really obvious question in this text, in this section. Who's missing? What word or name did we not read in Genesis 37? God. This actually, this actually is more real to life. See, sometimes we read the scripture and we think, oh, God spoke to so-and-so every Tuesday. You know, the, you know an angel appeared to someone on every Thursday. We're going to have lunch together. And here's an angel of God speaking. Anyway, we think, we, we read the Bible stories and we think, this happens every day, right? I read Genesis 37 and say, I can relate to this. Why? Because that's real life. This is why the scripture is, you believe the scripture is real, or it's because it's honest. It says, I'm going to show you the way people really are. I'm not going to, and yeah, they're going to be my people of God, but I'm going to show you how they really are, right? See, sometimes we, we hide behind religious, religious, religiosity. Yeah. We dress nicely, we speak Christianese, and we, 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 we conform, but inside we're not conformed, Right? And God's work is not just bring them to an outward conformity. Their, God's work is to bring them to a spiritual conformity within their heart that says, and later on we'll see the brothers said, hey, that, that's, we, I'm paraphrase, basically what we did is wrong, right? You're going to realize that. But the big question here is, where's God? You look at your life, you say, Sometimes you're going through things. You're like, where is God? People always ask, where was God? Well, if God was so powerful and wise, how come he didn't prevent these things from happening, right? How many times have you asked that question? Especially when you go through things that are like... And when you go through something, you ask the question, where is God? What did I do to deserve this? What can I do to get out of it and never have, have it happen again, right? My question usually is like, what did I do? And sometimes none of that is part of the thing. Realize this whole chapter is beginning to show, teach us about God's hidden hand, right? And oftentimes we want to hear God's audible voice left and right, but sometimes God's hand, who's directing the thing, you stand back and you say, okay, I see the hand of God. Let's look at it. First, for example, Joseph just so happened to be an honest young man. I think he's honest. I don't think he's a telltale. Why? Because if you look at the rest of the story, Joseph, he's honest with Potiphar's wife. He's honest with, he's a, he's a faithful, he's, he's faithful to his dad. Hey, Joe, can you go check on your brothers? Yes, I'll go, right? He's a pure hearty guy. When he gets thrown into prison later on in Egypt, he goes, and he's talking to the, to the baker and the candlestick maker and the... <laughs> He said, I don't deserve to be here, right? He's a pure, he may be naive, but he's a, little, he's a little honest. But the point is this. God gave him that family. The brothers are jealous, and God used that. God's hand was even in Jacob choosing to love him more. Why? Because he needed a cause. God needed to allow the jealousy to build up the tension so the brothers would do something. And then... God's hand was in that. God's hand was even with Jacob sending his son 
Joseph to check. Go, go away. You see the hand of God there. You see the hand of God even in the timing. Look at, or even in the situation. Look at verse 15. Joseph just happened to some, it happens to meet a man. You see that word right there, verse 15? A man? The last time we see that used is Jacob wrestling with a man. Some guy, some random guy just happens to be in the field where Joseph just happens to cross, cross paths. And that man just happens to have knowledge of where his brothers are. Just so happens that I overheard your brothers say they're going to adopt him. Who is this masked man, right? That's the hand of God. And now that where they end up camp, they end up going to Dothan, and then there's a trade route, and there just so happens to be Ishmaelites coming away, right? Coming their way. Oh, by the way, who just happens to not be there but Reuben? Reuben would have said, no, we are not going to do this. We're going to take him home. But Reuben's out of the picture. I think I see the hand of God there, right? And then you see the hand of God, the fact that they didn't kill him, but they sold him. And then you see the hand of God where he ends up in Egypt. How many guys look back at your life? Some of us have a role that we look back and say, that's the hand of God. I remember when I met my wife. That's the hand of God. Our paths, we weren't supposed to, well, this is God's hand. We're, see, we met at a different church. We were met at this big church, you know, and I just started going and, uh, and I was, you know, kind of getting to it and everything. And she was going to that church, but she was also going to another church. And she's like, and the day we met was, her, was going to be one of her last days at that other church because she was going to this other church full time, right? We just happened to meet that time. I guess it's just, just all the times, my, my being doing this just happened to have my pastors give me a word from the Lord that says, you're supposed to do this. And God just happened to using all the, but God uses this. Watch this. Joseph's going to comment. Go, in fact, go to Genesis 45 or Genesis 50, right? Go to Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph summarizes the whole thing. As for you, you meant evil against me. And what they did was evil, right? But God meant it for good. He doesn't say that, well, because God meant it for good, that negates the evil you did. It still was evil. But God in His providence, and His providence means His guiding hand to guide things into the way He wants them to be, right? God in His providence brought something good in order that was happened to stay to keep many people alive. What's going on? God knows that if he's going to have Israel, the family of Israel, be eventually the people of God, he knows he's got to protect them. And he knows that there's going to be a famine coming that's going to be devastating to the whole area. So he sends Joseph way ahead of schedule to be his man there, to eventually provide for his family. See, sometimes God does something and leads something in your life that's not about you today, but it's about you in a different place somewhere else, right? See, sometimes we think everything's about me, myself, and I, right? But God may be using you on a bigger scale, right? In a bigger setting, for some reason, and he allows you to experience things. He allows you to experience the pain, the sorrow, the brokenness. Why? 
Because eventually he's going to use that for his glory. Sometimes, if you ever hear, listen to people pray, you know, in prayer meeting and God, some people, we pray good prayers, you know, we're theologically right. But then there's some people who pray. And you feel a difference. Why? You feel, you feel, it's not, you feel the, 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 it feels, um, like the grapes have been squeezed, right? And there's, there's juice there. And you feel like this person has gone through the depths with the Lord and there's a, there's, there's a flavor to their prayers. Why? God has allowed them to experience the rejection, the brokenness, the hurt, the loneliness to make something that's More refined. I don't know what the what you call it, but God uses all. There's no wasted life. There's no wasted moment in your life. You say, "Why did I go through that?" God, God has. He's doing something. He's doing a work of transformation. That's the whole thing. The whole point. His work of transformation, and He will use anything and everything. And His whole goal is to conform you to Christ. His whole goal is to do a change within you, right? Had you not gone through that, you would not have prayed the way you prayed, right? You would not have cleaned on. If if Jesus doesn't show up here, there's there's blind, barren, Aramis. Jesus, have mercy. Have mercy. Have mercy on me. If you don't, it's that kind of thing, right? God's hand is seen in this whole story, and he's beginning here. We think we are in charge with our lives. But really, God's in control, isn't he? Now, he doesn't follow the script the way I, I present him a script. to say, hey, Lord, here's how you're supposed to live my life. Here's, here, here's how you're supposed to work. No, 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 no. God's like, um, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Will you trust me? Right? We see God's providential hand working. Paul says in Philippians 1.12, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Paul was in prison and Paul experienced some hardships there. God's plan will be fulfilled in our lives. Even if we don't recognize it, even if we resist it like the brothers even if we wander from it, even if we experience detours or delays, His will be, will be accomplished. Now how did Joseph, we just read in Genesis 50, that Joseph interpreted or had this perspective that God used this for His glory. As Paul says in Romans 8.28, for all things, right? works all things for good for those who love him, right? According to his purpose. How did Joseph interpret these struggles in his life? I think there's a couple of things. First of all, I think God or Joseph understand that God was good. When you experience something that's difficult and you know God is good, you have to trust. It's painful, but God is good. He's doing something good. It's, it's not what I want. I want out of this, but God is good. He's got my best interest in mind. 
Secondly, God's in control. Joseph understood that God was entirely in control. I don't, the text doesn't tell me, none of the chapters tell me that Joseph came to this realization. We just know that Joseph understood God's goodness and the fact that he was in control and that he works all things after his glory, even sinful and bad choices of people. Okay, let me just pause right here. You guys know I normally take just one verse or two, maybe. <laughs> 36 verses, but I had to do the whole scene, right? We're going to see God. God is at work in our lives. What are some lessons we can learn from this text? For, I've got like five lessons. First of all, focus not on the final destination, but on the process. Remember, you're in process, Right? And God is always working on our lives, right? There's always work for us. Even if I have all the best knowledge theologically in my mind, my heart sometimes is, you know, stubborn and rebellious and resentful. Or, you know, I have to work on that, you know, and, and give more things to Christ and, 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 and trust Him with more. Secondly, see His delays as opportunities. Joseph, or God was with Joseph and blessed him wherever He used him and had him. Thirdly, God's will and God's time. He may place you in a place that is at the right place, but the time has to wait, okay? Or He may place you in a situation where then His timing and His will is everything. Eventually, all God wanted Joseph to do was to be in Egypt, to be in charge, to save his family, and more people too, but rescue his family. Fourth lesson, what may look like resistance to God's plan is actually God using it to work along. Do you know that the brothers, when they said, let's sell them to the uh, to Ishmaelites and take them to me, they thought they were squashing God's plan. We'll, we'll do away with this dreamer. We'll send him off and see what happens. But actually, actually, that was God's plan. Their attempt to negate God's plan actually fulfilled God's plan. You can see that? They're actually doing the work of God by setting a Joseph into slavery. How does that, how does that work? Right? And finally, God's plan for my life involves more than just me. There's a bigger story going on, right? We see in Genesis 37, though, also a picture of Jesus Christ. Scripture says Christ came to His own His own people rejected Him. The Jews rejected Him. They they said, we don't want you. We see Jesus stripped of His position, in a sense, right? The picturing of Joseph being stripped parallels Christ being stripped. Christ was sold for the price of a slave by somebody that should have been his, his brother, Judas, right? His friend. But he said, the Christ, like Joseph, was sent. And Jesus Christ was sent by God to rescue not just some family members, but to rescue all of us by His sacrifice. 
We're going to celebrate communion today. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to give instruction on the communion. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the fact that your hand, though it's hidden from many of us, Lord, your hand is constantly and always guiding and leading, leading us. You're working in our lives to bring transformation, Lord. And no matter how messy our life is or how messy the situation we're in, you're able to take anything and anyone, no matter how broken, no matter how wounded, no matter how sinful, Lord, you're able to take anyone and transform them into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, all of us are like the brothers. We weren't perfect. We're sinful. But You're able to take a life and bring healing and transformation. You're able to make us from selfish to selfless from hating our brother to loving our brother. And Lord, You've done that work in many of us here. And You continue to do that, Lord. We give You praise. Because it wasn't us doing it, Lord. It was all God. And Lord, we praise You, Lord, that You sent Your only Son who's like Joseph, or Joseph's like him, who will be used to save his family. Lord, thank You that You sent Your Son on the cross. Your Son, Your perfect Son, who did the Father's will to do the Father's will and sacrifice, be sacrificed for sin. We thank You and praise You for that. Thank You, Lord, that Your hand may be hidden, but it's not stagnant and it's not ineffective, Lord. Thank You, Lord, for those divine appointments. Thank You for allowing us to experience the things we experience, knowing full well, Lord, that You are in control. Help us, Lord, to trust You more. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we normally pass it out, but because we're doing it different today, I want, we're going to have people come up. So we have, just come on up, and then take it back to your seat. And then we'll spend some time in, in just prayer, quiet meditation and prayer. Um, and then we'll take communion together. So come on up. Um, come on up. <laughs> take a, take a, a bread and a, and, a, and a cup and then, and then we'll, um, we'll pray together.
All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to care. Everything to God in prayer. Peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. What because we do not care. We everything to God pray. Lord, we just come together as a church body and just want to thank you for the sacrifice you gave. We thank you, Lord, that your work in our life is still ongoing. But all of it wouldn't be possible had you not suffered on the cross. The Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was being betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is a matzah bread that we've done at the Passover Seders and it's it's striped and it's pierced the way uh, the same way that... Uh, Isaiah 53 talks about how he was pierced for our transgressions and he received stripes for us. And it's, it's flat because it's unleavened. Leaven represents sin. So Christ um, gave his body. And so, Lord, we just thank you, Jesus, for offering yourself the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's partake together. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Lord, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Everything in history from Genesis 3 with the fall, looked forward 
to the one sacrifice of the Son of God. Lord, your blood was shed, your stainless blood. But the Scripture says that he who did not know sin became sin for us. You have taken and shed your blood as the atonement for our sin. And because of that, we are washed clean. All of our sins are washed clean. Let us taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's partake together. Why don't we stand up? If anyone needs any prayer, um, I'm available after service to pray. And uh, maybe there's some things you relate to in the Joseph story that you know maybe you want prayer for. Thank you, Stacy. God bless everyone. It's good to see see you today. And uh, I'm going to close out with uh, the ironic blessing. Moses tells Aaron, Say these words and place my name on the people with these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Did I mess that up? See, I'm going to practice, I guess, my... my May the Lord be gracious. I lost my place. I'm sorry. I'm distracted. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you. That means the smile of favor. And give you His peace. That's my prayer for you in Jesus' name. Have a blessed day, a blessed week. Be encouraged in the Lord. He's not finished what He started in your life. Amen? And He can take anyone, no matter how bad or hopeless it looks, anyone, and transform them to His Son's image. Don't give up hope. He's good, and He's faithful, and He knows how to do it. Amen? Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next time.